Welcome to Brightline Living, the official podcast of Brightline Eating, where we focus on living a life free from food obsession and filled with peace and unstoppability. Each week, Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson, New York Times bestselling author and founder of Brightline Eating, will cover topics ranging from food addiction to fascinating science and how to live a bright life. Now here's Susan with the audio version of this week's blog. Hey there, it's Susan Pierce Thompson and welcome to the weekly vlog. So welcome to part three of our series that we're doing on why is food the hardest addiction to kick? And I am serious, I really do believe that food is the hardest addiction to kick. Now, addiction is a beast and any addiction that you're currently struggling with is going to feel like the hardest addiction. And I absolutely can imagine people hooked on heroin, relapsing over and over again, thinking about me shooting this vlog series and thinking, uh, you're nuts lady, because heroin is the hardest addiction to kick. I can imagine anyone feeling like any of their addictions, cigarettes is the hardest addiction to kick. I've been hooked on most things that people think are really hard to kick. Crack cocaine, crystal methamphetamine, cigarettes, caffeine, alcohol, sex and love, and food. I really do think that food is the hardest addiction to kick, and there are reasons why. In part one of this vlog series, I talked about how you just can't stop. You just can't stop. It's the only substance that you're forced to continue consuming. And the boundaries between what's a permissible or non-addictive bite of food and what's not are not always clear, are somewhat specific to the individual, and that creates an incredibly slippery slope. You don't, you know, an alcoholic knows what the first drink is. A food addict doesn't always know what the first bite is. And that makes recovery so much harder. That one is so critical that I made it a separate video in and of itself. The second part of this three-part series was all about the brain and about how our brains respond particularly to food because food is particularly critical for survival and reproduction. And so how the brain orients toward food as the addiction is wiring up, how it orients toward food as the addiction has taken root, and how it orients toward not letting us let go of the addiction, doing things deliberately to rope us back into the addiction uh, that are specific to food, that do not happen when it comes to, say, quitting cocaine or any other substance of abuse or process for that matter. So the brain is a separate issue, that's part two. Welcome to part three, where our topic is the environment. The environment in which we move and live and breathe. Because the environment that we live in is so stacked against us when it comes to kicking food addiction, it's not even funny. And way beyond, way beyond what exists for any other addiction. So when I'm talking about the environment, first of all, there's gonna be three uh, distinct, unique features of the environment that we're gonna cover in this uh, vlog today. The first part of the environment that I wanna talk about is the multi-trillion dollar food industry, and in particular, the commercials 
that they throw our way. So there are limits, if not outright bans, on commercials for pornography, for cigarettes, for alcohol. There are no commercials for hardcore drugs of abuse like cocaine and heroin. But the multi-trillion dollar food industry, in the United States at least, currently has no limits on when and how and how much and how enticingly it can advertise its food products to us. And as a matter of fact, they've gotten savvier about their advertisements. So they're now using medical and neuroscientific technologies, putting people in fMRI machines to test their commercials to make sure that the images and sounds hit the addictive centers of the brain optimally, and putting people in fMRI machines to taste their snack food concoctions to make sure that they've got the right taste bliss points to blow out those centers of the brain to keep us coming back for more and more. So, you know, we don't have the cartels um, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out how to advertise cocaine to, I mean, it's just ludicrous, right? Like when you're driving to work, there aren't billboards for heroin, you know, shooting up heroin, or, you know, they're not advertising a buy one, get one free special for heroin. Like it's just, you don't have these types of advertisements for other food products. Now you do for um, caffeine to some degree, right? There are some advertisements for caffeine, but food is absolutely in its own category when it comes to the advertisements. And it's not just the advertisements, it's also the logos and the smells, like the environment that we live in. As you move through the environment, you're caught all the time with a sight or a sound or a smell that is a cue that uh, entices you to break your food abstinence, to break your bright lines, and to, to, to get a hit, right? So that's the first way in the environment. The second way has to do with the sheer number, the plethora of location and time-based cues that trigger us to eat. So let me give an example of what I'm talking about here. If anyone used to smoke, former smokers will definitely relate to the incredible urge to smoke a cigarette when you're walking out of a movie theater, okay? That is a time and location-based cue to smoke a cigarette. Because, you know, a movie is an hour and a half, two hours, these days two and a half hours. It's a long stretch of time without a cigarette for someone who's a smoker. And so when you're walking out of that theater and getting your first breath of fresh air, that is exactly when you would always light up a cigarette if you were a regular smoker. And so for years, potentially, even decades, if someone used to smoke cigarettes, when they walk out of a movie theater, the urge to light up a cigarette is going to be very powerful. That's because of the location and time-based cue to smoke. The thing about food is, that the whole day practically is a series of location and time-based cues to eat, right? If you wake up in the morning and the first thing you think of is a cup of coffee 
and you're gonna dump cream and sugar into that coffee, you wake up with a location and time-based cue to eat addictively, right? That cream and sugar, make no mistake, is addictive eating. Um, then probably within another you know, hour or two, you've got some sort of location and time-based cue to eat your next addictive thing, right? Then maybe you get to the office and there's treats here or there's a platter of Danish there or whatever, right? And so you move through your day and, you know, frankly, there isn't anywhere now where it's not sanctioned to eat. If you're a smoker or, you know, a heroin addict, there's all kinds of places that you can't use your drug where you wouldn't, where you couldn't. But flagrant addictive use of food is sanctioned right out in the open for anyone to see. You can just be putting food into your face <laughs> um, intensively and it's totally okay in our society. So there's no need to hide it. There's no uh, place where it's off limits. Whereas every other addictive process or substance you have to sort of hide or, um, you know, not have out in the open and you're not going to be cued to do it all throughout the day. So the location and time-based cues and sort of the out in the open nature of it is absolutely unique to food. And then finally, the third feature of our environment that is so specific to food is how the social environment is constructed to not just um, how do I put this? It's like for most addictions, let's say, you know, um, pornography, right? Um, the social environment doesn't reinforce using. You know, it might, I guess, if you see someone attractive, right? And that, and that cues you, but the people around you aren't encouraging you to log into a pornography site and masturbate, right? It's, it's, it's like the social environment doesn't uh, push it on you. Whereas with food, our current social environment pushes addictive eating on you all the time. It's actually hard in this current environment to keep your boundaries around food with the social pressure that's saying, oh, come on, you know, you have to eat everything in moderation. You're not going to diet on Thanksgiving, are you? Come on, have some pumpkin pie. Um, you know, the, the social pressure to eat addictively is actually enormous. And this is one of the reasons why I've made it part of my mission in life to really get through our entire society's collective understanding that food addiction is real because I want to see the type of backing off that I've seen personally as a recovering alcohol addict around alcohol. You know, when I used to, 28 years ago when I quit drinking, when I used to say I didn't drink on New Year's Eve, sometimes I would get pressure around that. Come on, you know, it's New Year's Eve. I never do anymore. When I say clearly I don't drink on New Year's Eve, people trip over themselves to get me something non-alcoholic to drink for a toast at midnight, right? Um, there's so much respect for the notion that alcohol is addictive, that some people really should not be drinking. It's better for everybody if those people don't drink. Um, and hooray, right? That pressure has, you know, 
not entirely gone away, but mostly gone away. There isn't that sort of pressure anymore. And I want to see that with regards to food. But the challenge is that eating socially, eating uh, in our clan, eating with others is absolutely wired in as a way of relating to people. And every gathering, every gathering that's got lots of people is going to be also focused around food and around eating holidays and celebrations, they're all food focused and the pressure to eat addictively that's social pressure is enormous. And you know, when I look through the addictive landscape of gambling and shopping and gaming and all the different drugs of abuse, I don't find anything even remotely comparable to that. There are of course little enclaves of like um, people who smoke and it's a friend group and they all smoke and so if you quit smoking and they're all your friends you might experience absolutely profound social pressure to smoke amongst that friend group but but and this is a big but if you quit smoking and you go out into the big bad world yes you still would feel social pressure to smoke amongst that friend group but there would be tons of other available social gatherings where you would not feel pressured to smoke. As a matter of fact, you would be reinforced for being a non-smoker in these gatherings where people are not smoking by and large, right? Um, whereas you would absolutely feel the pressure to eat at just about every social function that you can imagine. So food is the hardest. As you quit eating addictively, just living life is uh, a minefield, frankly. <sighs> now, to wrap up this video series um, on why food is the hardest addiction to kick, I just wanna say it is doable to stick with food recovery, but in my experience, it's the hardest, and what that means is that food recovery is next level recovery. It really does require uh, more vigilance, a higher octane program, meaning, you know, with alcohol and drug recovery, once I was clean and sober for a long stretch of time, I didn't need to go to that many meetings. I didn't need to stay in touch with people that closely. I didn't need to continue to do my inner work that rigorously. You know, I'm talking about once you've got five, 10 years of, of, of sobriety time, clean time under your belt, comparable to food recovery, it can feel like drug and alcohol recovery can run on autopilot. Whereas food recovery really never gets to run on autopilot because you're kicking the tiger, the actual substance, you're kicking the tiger and taking it for a walk three times a day. So you're still consuming the substance. The slippery slope is all around you in terms of exactly what you're eating, right? And you're in this food environment that's going to nonstop reinforce uh, the, um, opportunity and that temptation to eat off plan, to eat off plan, to eat off plan. And you've got a brain that would prefer that you do as well. So food recovery really takes more. It really takes more than recovery from any other addiction. In my experience and also, you know, if you look at the 12-step programs that relate to these different, um, you know, these different substance or process addictions, what you'll find is that the food communities where people are really recovering, they have a, a pretty high octane uh, program that they recommend, right? And so Brightline Eating is, um, 
it's a multifaceted approach to address food addiction recovery on so many levels. And that's because food is the hardest. And that's the weekly vlog. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Brightline Living. Please post a review and subscribe to our channel. Interested in learning more about Brightline Eating? Visit ble.life slash podcast to find out more. ble.life slash podcast. Have a bright day.